That's a song off uh, Amanda Cook's latest um, album, I say. You probably don't even say CD. Do you even know what a CD is? No. It's a download, and it's a beautiful song. It's one of my favorites. I listened, actually listened to that while I was walking last night, and then I didn't know you were going to sing that today. You did it beautifully, and it just really blessed me, so thank you. As Kevin mentioned, I was just over at the Knoxville... Uh, Chinese Christian Church this morning uh, over on Middle Brook and flew over here to be back. You know, they're always really gracious to let me slip out uh, real quickly and from their worship service. That church actually started here on the campus at, at Calvary, and uh, years ago they um, moved off. And anyway, they're just a sweet group of people. We still have a good, close relationship with. Um, Fang Yun Ding and Ying Ding, his wife, and their fellowship there in congregation. Um, <clears throat> you know, we are called to be like Jesus. That is, it's like Christianity 101, right? I mean, we, we that's such a basic assumption. And Jesus was a friend of sinners. And that was probably one of the things that stood out about him more than anything else as far as what got people's attention that were in his world and his environment because you just didn't do that, at least not like he did. I mean, he was just so comfortable. It was so natural, and it was just such a radical thing because he was accused again and again and again in his ministry of hanging out with people like tax collectors and prostitutes and gamblers and thieves and all of these people just under this broad classification of sinners. Jesus loved sinners, and I, I know that firsthand because I are one. I am one of those sinners that he reached out to, and that's what we're to do. What that means is that we're going to build relationships with people sometimes who live outside of this orbit of our moral universe. You know, the, the, we're, we're the church people. Uh, my sister told me once, uh, she said, you know, you're kind of like the white sheep of the family. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm the one that halfway through the meal, everybody stops chewing and says, oh, say the blessing. Like, you know, we, we always do that. We just forgot today, you know, and I'd say, okay, you know, bless you all. You know, and I understand what it's like to be on both sides of the cross, but I'm, I'm the Christian in the family now. What that looks like is that sometimes it means becoming a friend to people and loving them in spite of how different they are from you. It's discovering that Jesus is in places and in moments and will be with you with people that you didn't expect him to be in. And what we want to talk about this morning is just the fact that we've got to open our hearts and our minds to that and not just be willing to lean into it, but to be pursuing that. If you knew that your next meal uh, was going to be your last meal ever, who would you invite to sit at the table with you? 
You know, and we've thought about if you could have one last meal or you could have one meal and you could eat anything you want, what would it be? But not just about the food, but the people at that table, who would it be? I thought about that and I thought, well, it would be my family and friends, people who, you know, if you knew it was your last meal, I'd kind of want to be surrounded by supportive people, right? Who love me and who's going to be there for me. Not Jesus. His last supper was open to his worst enemy. To the man who would betray him and cause that to be his last meal. He was invited to the table. Along with these disciples who were friends of his. Who maybe wouldn't betray him in such a blatant way, but they would And they would deny him. And one of the last controversies and conversations they're having around this table is not concern for Jesus, but, hey, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to get to sit next to you? Am I going to be honored enough like in the way that I think I should be honored? That was the direction of the talk that night. Even among some of our heroes like Peter, who became... Maybe one of the greatest Christians to ever live. Never forget, Jesus loved Judas. Right up until the very end. And this is the relational understanding, folks, that we have to move into in the 21st century. Your neighborhood is probably, well, I say if you're my age... um, you know, or older especially, but I think for a lot of us in this room, your neighborhood, your school, uh, the news that we, we listen to or watch at night, and you think, whoa, if that's, you know, Kathy and I have talked about the fact that if our parents were still alive, we would have to debrief them, you know, just if all of a sudden they could come into to this century in this moment, we'd say, okay, we're going to try to explain some things to you that are going to sound really crazy, but this is the world we live in. You can't avoid that, and we can't pretend like it hasn't moved. Some people say, we're in a post-Christian culture. I don't know if I really bind to that, but I tell you this, I really do feel like an immigrant a lot of the time. And it's a different language. And we must love a culture and a nation that I think often looks a lot more like Judas than it does John. Today's the second week in a four-part series called Messy. Uh, We're looking at what it means and how do we love people with the same energy and passion that we love ourselves. Loving people gets kind of complicated, doesn't it? We talked about this last week. We said as long as it's at a distance, it's pretty easy. I can love a mass of people, you know, that I see, but it's, it's that one-on-one thing where things just get messy. That's especially true when we are called to love people that are different than us. That's true when they don't look like us or talk like us or think like us or have the same values. And that's what we're going to talk about today. 
in Luke chapter 10, um, Jesus is asked a question by a lawyer. And when I say lawyer, um, that, what that was about was a, a person who was an expert in the law. And you have to kind of keep in mind, because when I, when I say lawyer, you probably get an idea and you expect me to insert a lawyer joke right about now. And for those of you attorneys, you're already starting to cringe a little bit, but I'm not going to do that. You know, it's funny, you, you make fun or you don't like law, you know, until you need one, <laughs> and then it changes. But this guy was a lawyer, and what that meant was that he was an expert, not just in civil law, but religious law, because in that time, Rome had overtaken this entire area. And so they are like the ultimate authorities. But what they did, which was really pretty smart, as they would conquer all these places in the known world, they would allow all these subculture groups to continue to exist as they were and to keep their laws and to keep, as long as you didn't defy Rome, as long as you weren't treasonous and you kept the peace and everything, um, you're, you're good. So they left in place this mosaic, this Judaic, this, this, uh, this Old Testament law. So it was really easy for a guy, if you knew the Old Testament and you knew all those commands and you knew those laws, you knew the law. And that's who this guy was. He was a lawyer. So he asked Jesus a question. Am, am I, do I need to make an adjustment here? Kevin always says, don't touch it, leave it alone. And I, I'm nervous, I always do. And there, that's better. Um, <clears throat> this guy really was motivated by a couple of different things going on in the background. Um, in, in Luke 10, it says that he asked Jesus uh, this question to test him. And this happened all the time for Jesus. It's kind of like, you know, those old Western movies where there's one guy who's faster on the draw than everybody else, and one by one, all the gunslingers and everybody show up in town and try to take him on and, you know, and be the best. That's what was going on here. One by one, you see these teachers and these people who are really smart challenge Jesus, either to discredit him, to embarrass him in front of people, to kind of illustrate to the people, you see who you're putting your faith in? This guy, and he's not an expert. He's not legitimate. He doesn't have the credentials. So this guy's pretty confident. He knows the law. He knows a lot about everything. So he asked Jesus, and he's going to test him, and he's so confident in his own ability to out-talk him. So that's the setting that I want you to kind of keep in mind as this story unfolds. Have you ever seen movies or read a book, like a, maybe like a John Grisham book or a, a movie where there's a courtroom scene, and the attorney is kind of the hero? And in that money, and he asks this question, or he exposes, or the witness breaks down in tears, or somebody says, "I did it," you know, and uh, you know, and you can't handle the truth, and those no further questions. And then they say, "That's this guy, and that's this moment. At least that's the moment he hopes it will be, and he wants it to be." But it is Jesus, <laughs> so he asked Jesus. Um, what must I do to make sure that I've got eternal life? And Jesus turns it around and says, you're, you're a lawyer, you're an expert on this. What does the law say? And the lawyer quotes the scripture that if you were here last week for the beginning of this series, we looked at a scripture in Leviticus 19 
um, that just unfolds this for one of the first times. And Jesus would quote this and use this several times in his ministry. Uh, but he, but he, he answers back and he says, to love the Lord God with all your heart and your soul and your, you know, and then to love your neighbor with that same kind of energy, uh, those, that is the greatest commandment. And Jesus said, you got it right. You knew this. And it's been said that sometimes a lawyer will ask, he will not ask a question unless he already knows or she already knows the answer to it. He already knew the answer. He said, here's the, here's the answer. And Jesus said, boom, you got it. You're absolutely right. Just go do that. But then the lawyer thinks about it and what he's doing. Have you ever had to sign a contract? Have you ever bought a car or a house or, or I don't know, maybe even, you know, agreed to go to a certain school and you've just got paper after paper after paper with all this fine print and all this writing and you think, ah, where do I initial here, here, here and sign here? And you go, okay. And you think, I don't know if I want to read all this. Do you know why that's so lengthy? Because it can't be vague. It's got to be so specific you know, so that you know, okay, I'm right on target and I know the, and, and that's not left to chance. We don't want any ambiguity. Ambiguity, that's a fun word. So you, you get it right and it's real detailed. <clears throat> so the lawyer brings up this issue and you see, he's looking for a loophole. He's trying to figure out, so what do I have to do and how can I fulfill that and you know, stay in the bounds, stay within the rules, but yet I don't want to do any more than I have to. I mean, we're that way, right? You're, I mean, we're that way. When I get behind somebody on Westland and the speed limit's 45 and they're doing 30, I'm thinking, are you kidding? Go for 15 more because that's our boundary. You can do that. Don't stay so far under the law. That's kind of what's going on when the guy, at, when he says this, so who is my neighbor? That's the vague term. Is it the, the person who lives to the left and the right and maybe across the street or behind me? Has, has that got it covered? Is that all that I'm obligated to love? And everybody in the other circles, as they get bigger and bigger, I'm, that's kind of exempt because technically you said neighbor and not so much. They're not my neighbor. Jesus, you can imagine him just kind of, maybe he smiles or he looks down and he's just thinking, really? You're being so technical and it just is a reflection of our heart. It's like, you really don't want to love, do you? You want to know what is the minimum I can do and get by. Just like when you write a paper you know, or somebody says, you know, we need you to do this and you do that and you don't do one thing more. That's what he wants to know. And that's who the, the, the law, what the law was concerned about because the religious and national law intersected and they synced so closely. And so this guy wants to know how much wiggle room do I have? And scripture says in, in verse 29, <clears throat> pardon me, that he was seeking to justify himself. That little word is used 180 times in the Old Testament. He's trying to justify. You see, he's looking for how can I be okay and keep the law but yet, I need some wiggle room. It's a very legalistic application. And, you know, the whole premise of this series is the fact that love is messy. And it's never going to be very legalistic. 
You try that in your marriage. You try that in relationships with your kids or uh, your friends, and you just check off a list. That's really not what we're talking about, right? So Jesus tells this parable. He tells a story, one that we're probably, most of us are pretty familiar with. It's called the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and and it, that, that idea has leaked out into culture where a lot of people don't even know it's connected to a biblical you know, event and a story that, that he's really talking about here. Uh, but we, we're all kind of, we understand that. <clears throat> and the question that goes along with it, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer through this story then is the exact same answer that it is today. You love the one in front of you in whatever way you can. That's your neighbor. It's significant, at least to me, that the person Jesus commended was neither the religious leader uh, nor his associate, uh, but this hated foreigner. You know, and this person who is so radically off the chart. I mean, it was just such way, way out of bounds. You, you would not, I'm trying to think of a way to get you to relate to how hostile uh, the Jewish people were toward the Samaritans. There was a lot of bad history. A lot of things had gone in different directions. Uh, when, when Persia had, had this country and, you know, when they left and then this, this kind of this group grew up and they're neither one, they don't fit in anywhere and they've got these different ideas about faith. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't accept anything except the Talmud as scriptures. So the law, they have nothing to do with the house of David. They don't think... Jerusalem is the big place. They don't see what the deal is about that. Do you remember the woman at the well who was a Samaritan and talked to Jesus? And she said, oh, we will, or will we worship on the mountain where our fathers worked, worshiped? Why did she say? I mean, it's because she's a Samaritan. And you almost want to say, don't say that. That is a huge, sharp point of disagreement. But that's the Samaritans for you. So Jesus uses... That person. So you can just imagine that audience. I think if Jesus were telling this story today and he was telling it here uh, in Tennessee in a Baptist church, <clears throat> pardon me, he may, he may say, he may substitute Samaritan for a Shiite Muslim. Now you feel it, right? Jesus might also have been making a point that loving God religiously as the priest and the Levite, you know, must have thought they were doing the right thing. It's, it's just absolutely meaningless unless it's accompanied by love and that love is expressed toward other people in meaningful ways. So the lawyer wanted to know, where do I draw the line? Where do I draw the line? Jesus thought for a moment, and he said, well, let me tell a story that will help make this clear. So he tells this story about a guy who is walking uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. Or do I have that backwards? I think that's right. Okay, he's walking, and it's, this, it's really this road that is the shortest point from A to B. It's the shortest way you can go. But because it's well-traveled and short, uh, and it's on this this. Slow, this hillside, it's really easy. There's rocks and things all around. 
perfect places to hide if you're going to ambush somebody. So it was then and is now an incredibly dangerous road because that's where thieves and robbers and bandits, you know, that's where they hang out and they hide and they jump out and get people. So this guy is walking, and maybe he's a little wary about that, but too late. Some, some robbers, the scripture says, they jump out and they strip the guy because your clothes are probably one of the most valuable things that you own. And they take whatever he has And then they beat him up. They beat him so badly that he must be unconscious because he's just lying there when the next person comes along. And that next person is the priest. Now, the priest comes by, and he sees this guy at a distance, and he says, oh, he may be dead, and if I get anywhere near him, if I touch him, then I'm defiled, I'm unclean, and I've got to go through all these rituals. You know what's easier and better to do? I'm not going to go out of my way. I don't want any trouble. So he crosses the road, and he goes on by, pretending like, I don't, what, a, a guy, a body? I didn't really, did you see anything? I didn't see anything. So after he's gone, another guy comes by, and he's a Levite. And he does the exact same thing. He crosses the road and he walks past. Don't see it, don't see it, don't see it. I don't want to get involved. Now, the priesthood was divided into kind of like two classifications. There were the priests and there were the Levites. The priests were the ones who oversaw everything. They're the big daddies, okay? They're they're the boss of you. They're the ones who oversaw the sacrifices and everything. And who made that happen, kind of like right under them, were the Levites. The Levites were the ones who kept the temple clean and repaired. They They were the ones who actually slaughtered the animals. Did you ever think about, you know, when you read those Old Testament scriptures and where they're making sacrifices all day? Have you ever been hunting or, you know, and you just think, yeah, you're getting the idea. It was, it was just this bloody all-day thing, and that's your job all day. So these guys are just covered. I mean, ah, and that's their job. And so they, they kept the temple. I mean, they, they were guards. They were singers. <laughs> they, were, they did all of that. I guess they sang while they're doing that. You know, I don't know. But that was, that, was, that was who these people were, and they were the epitome of the religious culture of that day. And it was brilliant of Jesus to mention them and to use them in the story because with those two being represented, you covered everybody. It's like saying all the pastors and the deacons and the small group leaders and the teachers and the, you know, it's like they were all walking. You know, that, that's, you get the feel for it. He, he picked the people that would kind of cover the whole thing. So they, they cross the road and pretend they don't see him. And that's, that's who it is. And the, like I say, the animosity, what they felt, what, uh, it was the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was worse than Republicans and Democrats. Bad. Yeah, it was bad. So they passed by, which is, um, it's kind of like when you see somebody in the restaurant or a story, and you don't want to, you're walking through campus and you don't want to talk to somebody, you don't want to be bothered, what do you do? Oh, you get out your phone. The old fake phone trick, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you talk, or you, ta- you know, or if you're maybe getting on an airplane, what do you do? 
You put your headphones on or your earphones, you know, and you're, you're just, you zone out, and, and people can't talk to you because they don't know, and you're pretending to listen to music or you really are. That's what they were doing. They were avoiding the situation. So they move on, and the guy's still lying there when this Samaritan of all people comes by. And he doesn't move away from the guy. Verse 31 and 32 tell us that both the priest and the Levite crossed the road to keep from coming in contact with the man. I've got an idea they maybe thought he was dead or they just wanted to get home. They've been doing their thing all day and they're just tired. The Samaritan doesn't pass by but moves toward the man because that's what love does. And let me just let me, let me tell you something. If you feel lost in a relationship and there's not a connection there, or maybe there's animosity, or maybe something's happened, and you don't know how to fix that, and you don't know what to do, and it's just weird, you got something like that going on, maybe with a roommate. I had a roommate once, and we had an altercation, and so we just didn't we just didn't talk, and we'd go for a day, you know, and you, you're there in the same apartment, and you don't you just avoid each other and you know maybe you're in a place like that um, you're waiting for something to happen because it's at a standstill here's here's some counsel move towards them your mom your friend your spouse your roommate even an enemy do something to take a step forward towards that person And I know when I say that, maybe somebody came to your mind and you're thinking, no, I don't want to do that. And it's scary because you risk rejection and you risk getting hurt again. And I'm not going to tell you it might not happen because there's a chance that could be the way it plays out. But it's worth it and that's what we're called to do. Because that's what love does. And I want you to note too that that doing this took up this guy's time. I mean, it changed his whole schedule and agenda because he, he bundles the guy up. He takes care of him. He takes him to an inn. He takes him like to a hotel somewhere where he can rest. And he stays there. And then the next day he gets back on his travels. But before he does, he pays the innkeeper two denarii, which was quite a sum of money. So it takes up his time and it's going to cost him money. I told you, love gets messy. It's going to take your time, and it just might cost you some money. But that's what he does. And he even goes so far as says, look, here's, you know, this ought to cover it. But if it doesn't, I'll be back, and I'll pay you whatever I owe you. If you have to spend extra on medicine or whatever, because the medicine so far, the only thing he had used on him was olive oil and wine, <laughs> because that's all he had. You know, there's probably an antiseptic and probably, some, you know, and that's, so he said, do whatever you got to do, I'll pay you back. Judging others for their brokenness distracts us from being able to really love them and to see the way that we can show them the love of Jesus. So don't get thrown off and don't let the fact that because somebody is really different than you or maybe you just kind of feel like I'm kind of scared of them or I don't like them or they're not like me, 
let that be the fuel. You know, let that be something that pushes you towards them instead of away from them. And just like this law expert who asked Jesus the question in the passage, we may wonder, whom exactly, God, do you expect me to love? How far do you want me to go with that? Uh, there's so many problems in the world today. There's problems just in my neighborhood, in my school. In my, I, I'm tempted to think I can't possibly make a difference. And in his response, Jesus makes it clear that your neighbor is the one in front of you. So maybe you can't make a difference today in a hundred people's lives or a thousand people's lives. That's why he just typically brings people to you one at a time. I was at North Point Church in Atlanta a couple years ago, and I heard Andy Stanley say something that really stuck with me, and I, I wrote it in my journal. He said this, Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. The robber would say, what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. Times are hard. I'm bigger than you. I'm strong. I'm whatever. And this is just the way it works. Sorry about that. The priest and the Levite would say, what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. But the Samaritan said, what's mine is yours and I'm going to share it. So as you go about your day-to-day life, what are you thinking about? Because it occurs to me that I spend a lot of time thinking about myself. What are you paying attention to? Who are you paying attention to? Are you looking for people who might need a word of hope? Because oftentimes we just get so distracted from the hearts and the the needs of people around us that we we move right past it. At Christmas, I don't know if I've told this, I'm kind of becoming, I I hope not, one of those pastors who tells the story and you think, oh, here we go, I know this story, so I'm just going to get my phone out. Um, but I was Christmas shopping with um, my grandson, who's three years old, Riley, and we were at the Dollar Tree, and I told him he could buy anything, and I think I have told you that part. So we're checking out, and there's a lady in front of me, and then there's a lady in front of her who's actually at the register, and the lady at the register is, like, chatting with her, you know, and... um, she says, you, know, you have a big Christmas planned. Are you almost done with all your shopping? And she said, really, I'm just not doing a lot of shopping this year. This is kind of all. I'm just not doing it this year. I don't have a big meal. And she goes, oh, it's kind of quiet. And she asked two or three questions. And finally, the lady says, well, I have. And she, she named a certain kind of cancer. And she said, and I'm doing these chemo treatments. And I'm just so tired and wiped out. I just told my kids and everybody, I said, you know what? I'm just not going to do it this year. I I just can't do it. And I'm listening, you know, listening. And the lady in front of me reaches up and she touches the lady, like on her shoulder, and she just touches. And she said, last Christmas, 
She said, I had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was going through a real similar thing. And I just want you to know, I'm going to be praying for you all during the holidays. Do you mind me asking, what is your name? And she just told her her first name. Both the ladies teared up and hugged one another. Because they had a mutual pain. One had been healed and one was going through the process of the healing. But they connected. But I just loved so much that the way this lady chose to express her love was to say, I'm going to be praying for you. Now, I'm trying to keep my grandson corralled, and he's bought one of those things that you squeeze, and it's got a stick, and the end of the stick does this when you squeeze it. You know what I'm talking about? So he, and you know how they put all those things at child eye level? He's entertaining himself by seeing how much of the gum and candy bars that he can grab, and he knows I'm the yes man, and if he wants Skittles for breakfast, why not? You know, so he's he's doing. I'm trying to do this, but I'm just I'm just captured by this moment as I realize what's happening in front of me. It's Christmas. It's this little. It's this moment. When we go out on the sidewalk. This lady's still there, and I feel like here I am. Johnny, come lately. Hey, <laughs> the priest and the Levite. I said, you know what, I couldn't, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation, and I just wanted you to know, I'm going to be praying for you too. And uh, I heard your story. And I've had people in my family and people I love and people in the church where I worship, and, and some of us have walked through that ground, and I, I haven't had it, but, I, but I've seen it up close, and I know it's a terrible battle. And I'm just going to be praying for your victory and for your healing. What are you going to do this week? Are you going to stay legalistic and, and think, well, as long as I'm taking care of my family and sort of kind of loving them? And even if you're a dad or a mom or, or you've got parents and you think, as long as I love my parents to this, that's all I've got to do, right? No, can you push past that? Can you love the people on campus a little harder and, and in ways that are just more obvious? Because there's a lot of nice people in the world who are going to meet those minimum requirements. That great theologian whom I studied in seminary, Jimi Hendrix. What, can I, he said, you know, the world won't know peace until we really love each other. I think, do I have to have a rock star to teach me that? We're the ones supposed to already be engaged. So what's this week going to look like for you? I've asked Rachel to, to come and to read this following letter. Um, it's an open letter from a lady named Deborah Green, who was touched deeply by the practical help of believers in a time when she needed hope the most because sometimes loving others is just loving with awareness and with compassion so this week 
Love the person in front of you and do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Dear strangers, I remember you. Ten months ago when my cell phone rang with news of my father's suicide, you were walking into Whole Foods, prepared to do your grocery shopping, just as I had been only minutes before you. But I had already abandoned my cart full of groceries, and I stood in the entryway of the store. My brother was on the other end of the line. He was telling me my father was dead, that he had taken his own life early that morning, and through his own sobs, I remember my brother kept saying, I'm so sorry, Deborah. I'm so sorry. I can't imagine how it must have felt for him to make that call. After I hung up, I started to cry and scream as my whole body trembled. This just couldn't be true. It couldn't be happening. Only moments before, I was going about my errands on a normal Monday morning. Only moments before, my life had felt intact. Overwhelmed with emotions, I fell to the floor, my knees buckling under the weight of what I had just learned. And you, kind strangers, you were there. You could have kept walking, ignoring my cries, but you didn't. You could have simply stopped and stared at my primal display of pain, but you didn't. No, instead, you surrounded me as I yelled through my sobs. My father killed himself. He killed himself. He's dead. And the question that has plagued me since the moment that came to my lips was why? I must have said that over and over again. I remember in that haze of emotions, one of you asked for my phone. You asked who I should call. What was my password? You needed my husband's name as you searched through my contacts. I remember that I could hear your words as you tried to reach my husband, leaving an urgent message for him to call me. I recall hearing you discuss among yourselves who would drive me home in my car and who would follow that person to bring them back to the store. You didn't even know one another, but it didn't seem to matter. You encountered me, a stranger, in the worst moment of my life, and you coalesced around me with one common purpose, to help. I remember one of you asking if you could pray for me and for my father. I must have said yes, and I recall now that Christian prayer being offered up to Jesus for my Jewish father and for myself. It still brings both tears to my eyes and makes me smile. In my fog, I told you that I had a friend, Pam, who worked at Whole Foods, and one of you went to search for her, and thankfully, she was there that morning. You brought her to me, and I remember the relief I felt in seeing a face familiar and warm. She took me back, comforting me and caring for me so lovingly until my husband could get to me. And I even recall that when I sat with her, one of you sent a gift card to Whole Foods to me. Though you didn't know me, you wanted to offer a little something to let me know that you would be thinking of me and holding me and my family in your thoughts and prayers. That gift card helped me to feed my family when the idea of cooking was far beyond my emotional reach. I never saw you after that, but I know this to be true. If it were not for you, I might have simply gotten in my car and tried to drive myself home. I wasn't thinking straight if I was thinking at all. If it were not for you, I don't know what I would have done in those first raw moments of overwhelming shock, anguish, and grief. But I thank God every day that I didn't have to find out. Your kindness, your compassion, and your willingness to help a stranger in need has stayed with me until this day.
And no matter how many times my mind takes me back to that horrible, life-altering moment, it's not all darkness, because you reached out to help. You offered a ray of light in the bleakest moment I've ever endured. You may not remember it, and you may not remember me, but I will never, ever forget you. And though you may never know it, I give thanks for your presence and your humanity each and every day.